And that's when I said, we all get a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. Welcome to episode 35. That's right. And what are we talking about in episode 35? Episode 35, we are talking about the lies of Locke Lamour. We are talking about the interlude before chapter five and chapter five. That's right. And next up, we are going to have a little bit of a longer section. We're going to read the interlude titled Jean Tannen. It's fine. All the way through, (laughs) that is through up to and including chapter seven, which is titled Out the Window. So there will be two interludes and two chapters, a little under 80 pages covered in the next section. We can do it. We can do it. We can make it happen. So why don't you tell the folks listening our spoiler policy? So our spoiler policy is very simply that Liz has read these books and I have not. So we will not spoil anything through the end of chapter five of the Lies of Locke Lamora. That is correct, sir. So, but before we get into that, before we get into that, we want to give a little bit of something for our new listeners, folks who have come on board since we've started reading The Gentleman Bastards. To let them know just a little bit about us so they don't have to go back and listen to 30 episodes. I mean, they they should go back and listen to 30 episodes, but they don't have to go back and listen to 30 episodes of the King Killer Chronicle to get to know us. So I have a question for you. Oh, I like questions. And and I'm pinning this on you as a surprise because this, this makes it more fun for me. Okay, now it feels like a test. <laughs> So the question is, give me some of your, give me your top three favorite villains in sci-fi and fantasy. Oh, that is a great question. Oh, good. Okay, well, number one, obviously, and for all time, has got to be the mayor of Sunnydale from (laughs) season three of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He is my all-time favorite villain. He was just this squeaky clean, like, golly gosh darn um, sort of politician who was also like an evil sorcerer who was intent on summoning a demon from the netherworld. And he just, he was played with such aplomb, and I, I just loved every minute of his performance. So that's always been my very, very favorite villain. Is one of them Michael Van Gerwen? Now, you know how much I love Michael Van Gerwen. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, who's popping to my mind, too, is um, I, I love Ambrose from the King Killer Chronicles. Hmm. Not in that I love him, but in that I love to hate him. He's he's definitely somebody you love to hate. I, I, I think he was really well written. And um, so the, there was a villain on uh, the show Firefly, and I can't remember what his name was, but he's always stuck in my mind as being really just like kind of an underrated but awesome villain. Um, he was on the the last episode. I'm trying to remember what his name was. Oh, Cheek Pitafarker. No, he was. That was the villain in the movie. The yeah, actor who played the villain in the movie. But um, anyway, uh, and the, the very last episode of sorry spoilers for firefly if you never saw the series 
stop right now, go watch it, and then come back to this episode. We'll see you in about like 20 hours or whatever. <laughs> It'll be worth it. <laughs> but this uh, this sort of space pirate comes and like takes over the vessel, and he's just so like creepy and like this passionless psychopath. And I, I don't know, he just, I, I thought he was a really great villain. Yeah, I remember what you're talking about. I can't think of the name either. I want to say Michael... No, Jubal. Jubal yeah, Early. That's right. Yes. Anyway, so yes, those are my top three villains, at least that are coming to the top of my head right now. As I'm pinning you down. And As you're pinning you. me down. That's okay. So what are yours? All right. So my three in reverse order. Number three, Aaliyah Atreides from the Dune series. Okay. Yes. So Excellent. Love, love Aaliyah Atreides as a villain. Number two is probably one that not a lot of people are going to know. It's Sidney Lostero, who is the, I think, the hero, but really the villain of the video game Vagrant Story, which if you haven't played that video game, go get a PS1 just to play that video game. <laughs> it's an awesome video game. And number one, Jamie Lannister. Oh, I didn't even go Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, Jamie Lannister's a great, great villain slash anti-hero. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, he's my faves. Got to like the Jamie Lannister. All right. All right, so that's kind of our getting to know you section, and we'll we'll have that for a few weeks at least to, to help people to get to know us as the as Or until the we get tired of talking about ourselves. Yeah, or until we forget about it one day and... Never get back to it. You know, that's the way we do things around here. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about The Lies of Locke Lamora. Let's talk about the interlude titled The Boy Who Cried for a Corpse. Right, so this interlude starts out with um, Locke waking up with a hangover again. We've already gone over how you feel about that. But. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not a big deal. <laughs> but um, he begins his training, uh, not only as uh, initiate of the Order of Paralandro, but of one of the Nameless 13th, who is the benefactor of, um, patron, patron god of thieves. So we get a closer look at the training that Chains is giving his initiates. And um, he is he's teaching them not only about, actually about, how does an initiate of Paralandro act? But also uh, he's teaching them v- Vadrin mm-hmm, or yep. Vadrin. Not sure. Yeah. But that's one of the northern languages. Not only Somebody how to who's speak read, it. Yeah, who's listened to the audiobook needs to come oh, yeah, correct chime us in. Our... Is it Vadrin or Vadrin? Don't know. But he's teaching them how to speak that language with different dialects and different accents. Um, and he's also teaching them cooking and just all kinds of gentlemanly things. Um, on page 253, it says, there was a dizzy, dizzying variety of instruction in virtually every sphere of human accomplishment instead of thievery. So emphasis on the gentleman in this part of the book. Yeah, and the education. I mean, he's getting a better education than he would have got if he had just, you know, if his parents hadn't have died and he just remained a lower class person or even a middle-class person in Camorra, he wouldn't have gotten this level of education. Right, and Chains is pushes these kids, but in a kind way. You know, he, he requires them to learn before they can eat, but he also reminds them of why they're doing what they're doing, and he is able to inspire them to want to work as hard as they can. 
He does rem- remind Locke periodically that he can kill him at any time, <laughs> but he doesn't do it in, like an asshole. He's right. not, he's he's not, not a, a jerk, jerk about, about it. it. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I can throw you in the river and feed you to the sharks anytime I want to, <laughs> but I'm not going to be an asshole about it. You don't have to go there. <laughs> right. No, but they, he does seem to, to care about them and care about educating them. And, you know, I thought it was interesting in this section, the, and, we, and we've talked a little bit about the descriptions of food in, in the book, and I'm always interested in that as, as a literary device mm-hmm. and how it's used, especially in fantasy, as far as world building. It's a really good way of um, kind of giving you an idea about, about people's culture, and it actually got me reading some essays about food description as a literary device. Really? Okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, because it's so easy to overdo, I think, in fantasy literature. You, ne- you know, you have authors. And uh, by the way, I never mind when an author o- overdoes the food descriptions because I love food. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I love <laughs> reading about food. Yeah, well, that sounds really good, you know. <laughs> Some people it really bothers. But I just think that Scott Lynch uses it really masterfully. Um, and I, you know, I was reading this one essay about Hemingway and how he used a lot of food descriptions because he talked about, you know, a lot of his protagonists traveled to different countries. You know, one quote I wrote down from this essay, and I will post a link on the website about it, um, remind me. Mm. But um, he says that Hemingway often had his expatriate characters eat native foods, allowing them emotional access to the world they were inhabiting. Mm. And I was like, yeah, that's what I feel. You know, I feel like um, Lynch uses his descriptions of like Komori food to do that. You know, and it, it made me think about how Kamor is a city with a lot of dramatic contrasts. You have light yeah. and you have dark. You have the beauty of the elder glass. And then you've got these seedy descriptions of Shades Hill and the cauldron. And you've got like the ugliness of the corruption that's running rampant. But it's contrasted with this beautiful passion for cuisine that the people have. You know, and so in Kamor, they have the best food around. You know, in fact, it's they, they call them the eight beautiful arts of cooking. So each type of food is its own beautiful art that the chefs will specialize in. And I just love the way he like talked about that. And it was like, well, there's there's some things that these people are interested in just for beauty's sake. You don't see that a whole lot in other areas of the culture, at least not to this point. Right. And I just love how it just paints a, a picture of a really complex society. Okay, so it's not just like all this ugliness and seediness and uh, and a place I'd never want to live. It's there's there's light and dark there. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So something that really changes as well in this interlude is Locke's relationship with Callow and Galdo. Yes, very much so. So in this section, Chains sets them up on their first thieving task. And he tells them that they need to steal a corpse for a black alchemist named Jesseline Daubert. And the black a name we've heard before, we have heard it before. So we know that she's still around in the present time mm-hmm. because she is the alchemist who makes Locke and and the crew's powders oh, yeah. and whatever they need. So the black alchemists apparently are the the alchemists who do the poisons and other little illegal things that the underworld uses. And Jesseline is apparently one of the best. So she needs a corpse. So they're going to get her a corpse. Got to be a fresh one. Well, even so, yeah. So you talk about this is kind of where their relationship begins to change. But really, I think it, it, it even goes a little further back because before he gives them the task, 
what happens is that the Sansa brothers are trying to play pranks on Locke, and they get to the point where they can never catch him. They can never catch him sleeping. They can never catch him with his guard down. And, you know, they're beginning to gain that respect. And he's, you know, beginning to show a, a certain level of craftiness and alertness that you don't typically see from a nine-year-old boy. Right. Locke is unprankable, basically. Which is impressive. He's seen them all. The saran wrap over the toilet seat. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> There's nothing like a good saran wrap prank. He's had his bed short-sheeted more times than you can count. Oh, then they started taking his clothes and slowly replacing it with slightly larger clothes. <laughs> so over the course of a week, he's like, I've, I've shrunk. <laughs> and then they decided to replace it with clothes that were dramatically smaller. <laughs> so he was like, what the fuck is going on? I hate it when people do that to me. Then he came home and they glued all of his stuff to the ceiling. <laughs> You had mean friends. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of the best prank I ever pulled. And I don't know if it's the best prank I ever pulled, but when I was in the army, I had a friend who, God love him, he was a great guy. He was a little on the gullible side. He had a crush on this girl who was uh, in our unit. And so we all got very inebriated one evening and we decided that it would be hilarious to write a love letter to her from him. Oh. But the way that we got, we were like, he, she's not going to believe it. I'm like, I'll get him to sign it. And they're like, there's no way you're going to get him to sign it. And I said, yes, I will. And I took a blank sheet of paper and I walked down to his door at like 2.30 in the morning. And I banged on the door and I said, Wes, get up. <laughs> and he came to the door, all but dragging. I'm like, Sign the bottom of the sheet of paper. And he just he signed it. He was like, can I go to bed now? I'm like, get out of here. Go to bed. And then we. Did they end up together? No, they oh, didn't end up together. That's crushing. No, it was it's actually a little sad. Anyway. I'm trying to think of the best prank I ever pulled. And I think that really the only prank I've ever pulled was because you made me do it. Oh, yes. And it was when I was eight months pregnant with our third child, and we were buying our first minivan, and you said, I dare you, when we go in there and sit in that office, pretend you're not pregnant, and when they ask when you're due, get all offended. I I said, I guarantee you he's going to ask, when do you do, (laughs) and when he does, you're going to be like, what? (laughs) And it was glorious. It was. It was fantastic. And he said, so uh, so is this your first? And she was like, I'm, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> I was so pregnant. <laughs> you were very obviously I pregnant. Barely waddle. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. That was a good one. Anyway. Oh, back to the book. But Locke wouldn't have fallen for it. No. He was unprankable. The Sansas begin to rely on him a little more and... and, and I, the quote I wrote down is, you know, it's talking about when Chain sets this task before them and Locke says, okay, we need a fresh corpse. We're not allowed to be responsible for killing, for making the corpse. And he goes, okay, I need you guys to just sit on the steps tomorrow and man that and let me think about it for a whole day. And they go, oh, thank God. Yeah. Okay. 
And it's, it talks about from, from Chain's perspective, it says he would remember that moment ever after, the night the Sansas conceded that Locke would be the brains of their operation, the night they were relieved to have him as the brains of their operation. So we really see that relationship begin to develop. Yeah. And that's in part, I think, because Locke is beginning to develop. And I love what Locke says at the end of this section. Chains warns him that, hey, well, first he points out to Locke, pointedly looks at him and says, you're not allowed to be responsible for making the corpse. And the Sansas kind of look at him. And then he says, you're also not allowed to burn down any inns or create any kind of mass chaos. And they or, look at him yeah. again. and No p- fake plagues. Yeah. No fake plagues, exactly. Yeah. And Locke says, you know, I'm not as reckless as I was, you know, when I was little. Little. Six months before. <laughs> exactly. You're a nine-year-old. You are little. So for me, I feel like it's... it's um, it's always kind of jarring and shocking when his age is mentioned. It is, you know, and, and this is not uncommon in this genre. There's a tendency to to have these extremely precocious children, and, and I think it's it's an area that is really dangerous for a lot of authors. I mean, I, I tend to think that a lot of these young children are written much older than they actually are, and um, but. I don't really fault the authors for it because it's incredibly difficult to write a child that age and have them really be an active participant in what's going on around them, you know, and not just kind of be a victim or a, or a camera. So, you know, as long as it's not super distracting, it doesn't take me out of the moment, then I just kind of go with it. At the same time, I think a part of that is our cultural expectation of what an eight or a nine-year-old child is. Is like and historically, eight or nine year old children at, at times in history were very close to being adults. You know, a few years from being of marriageable age. Yeah, true. You know, and I remember, without digressing too much, being really shocked at reading this um, description up for, by an anthropologist of describing this this young girl, this girl who uh, went on a hunting trip with her family or whatever, and all the responsibilities that she did. She like caught food, cooked the food, cleaned up after the family, all these things that she did. And then at the end tells you that she was eight years old. Mm. And I don't know. I can't imagine our eight year old doing that. Let's just say. Well, we did come home. We did wake up in the morning and she had cooked breakfast on the stove by herself and And we told her to never do that again and we were like thank you don't ever do it again (laughs) exactly but no fair point i think that's definitely a fair point though i would like to highlight that history is kind of swinging that pendulum back this this idea that you know in medieval times 12 year olds were grown-ups and were getting married the the pendulum is swinging back to finding out that those are more the exceptions than the rule for that age. Really? And, yeah, and the the ages where people were actually getting married and considered kind of adults, though younger than it would be today, is not quite so young as we had anticipated or as we had um, really? expected over the last several decades. That yeah. is very interesting. I did yep. not know that. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Good but what happens is when some prince from some places promise to some princess from some other place at the age of 12 that gets written down in the history books right so it wasn't like everybody was going out yeah, there getting correct. hitched at 12 exactly right. exactly so anyway we have digressed enough we are digressing we are all in over. section one of the interlude let's <laughs> let's move this forward 
So sections two through six describe Locke's plan to get a corpse. Plot-wise, what happens, because it seems kind of simple, but then there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can pick up from it. Um, But basically, Locke gets the name of a man who's due to be hanged. And he, Callow and Galdo, bribe a clerk to take his body away. They say, oh, his widow wants us to have it. And that's it. They get the body. However, as a twist, they decide to take the body through an area of the city called the Videnza, where folk are apparently still somewhat happy enough to be charitable. And they stage a robbery, which then inspires the kind people of the Videnza to replace what was stolen from them, which then they make back their bribe money. So it's just a a neat little... um, turn of events but there's a lot of interesting stuff that you pick up on from that yeah especially from a world building perspective there's a lot of little world building nuggets yeah that that i enjoyed in this and 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 i like the way it's done because again it's just dropping little things here dropping little things there you know the palace of patience was the first one that i noted and they talk about it being the the building where the first kings built their palace and they built it separate from all the elder glass structures because at that time they were still afraid of the elder glass structures. So that sort of gives you a glimpse into the idea that people have become accustomed to this elder glass thing, but that was not always the case. There was a period of time where they were very frightened and intimidated by the buildings, whether that's because it seemed like this alien thing or whether that's because they, you know, many, many, many generations ago, knew the people who lived there and were afraid of them is, you know, we don't really know at this time. But that I I thought was interesting. The other thing I thought was interesting about the Palace of Patience is they say that in the Palace of Patience, there are gallows and dungeons and, quote, other things, end quote. You know, anytime I see something like that, I'm like, what are the other things? Tell me what these other things are. (laughs) You know, and now I'm looking for all the hints. I didn't find any. But that's something I'm I'm kind of keeping my eyes focused on. Yeah, and we also get confirmation that the city-states were once united under a single king in a city named Therampel. We That may have been confirmed before, but again, it's mentioned, the whole idea of this, this Theron throne. So there, that all these city-states were once part of a unified kingdom, and they've mm-hmm. since fractured, and they each have their own individual duke who kind of run, runs things. Mm-hmm. And I think you also learned some interesting things about the Kamori people, their view of charity and just their kind of worldview. Um, so one thing I wrote down was how most Kamori regard the order of Paralandra with a mixture of cynicism and guilty piety. So they kind of make fun of it like, oh, those cheesy bastards over there, you know, but they also give them money. You know, because then they kind of feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. And you see this in the clerk that they bribe. Yeah. You know, they go up and and they say, oh, you know, we want this body. And she's like, oh, no. And they they give her a purse. And she's like, "Mm, I don't know. And they give her another purse. And she goes, well, maybe, but I'm not convinced. And they give her a third purse. And she's like, oh, okay, it's fine. And then but then she kind of goes, "Uh, I'm, I'm sorry about, you know, calling your God the beggar's God. And uh at, to that Locke says, you know, 20 years of... <laughs> <laughs> 20 years blessing. 20 years of blessings on you. You know, so it's this kind of like mocking, but then also having a shred of, of guilt about that mocking. And I loved the the comments about this this idea that the Kamori people have about 
the souls of the hanged men. So they they hang their uh, convicted criminals over the river because they believe that the moving water will carry their souls away. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of even a half-baked notion that the souls of these men go into the sharks in the water, and that's why the sharks are such a problem around that's the why city. They're such angry bastards. And they're kind of like, yeah, but that's fair, you know. Seems, yeah. <laughs> it says, as far as most Kamori were concerned, turnabout was fair play. And they're like, eh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Like they're cool with that. They're like, yeah, that's yeah, fair. <laughs> I don't remember. Do they? Oh no, they they don't cut. They don't dump them in the river. They intern them. That's right. Okay. Right. Um, but it's this whole like the cynical brutality of these people. Um, it's very interesting. It also kind of talks about how this really stems from a deep unhappiness for the most part. How most of the people in the city are are like really unhappy. Yeah, it's a it's a deeply deeply. I'm struggling for the word, but unequal society. There's just, you know, people who are mega crazy rich and everybody else who is just either barely getting by or they're catch fire orphans. Or you've got this little pocket of wealthy merch, uh, craftsmen and merchants in a place called the Videnza, which is where Locke and his his gang bring their corpse through on the way back. And we can talk a little bit more about that because I love how beautifully they exploit these people. Yeah, absolutely. So according to chains, the artisans and the craftsmen in the Videnza are the few people in the city who are happy enough to actually care about or, or to have a shred of compassion for other people. But only so much. Only so much. So so they they take this corpse through and and people are like touching their foreheads and kind of like looking at them with a little more reverence oh, and isn't it a shame? they go to the candle maker and and she throws in a few extra candles for them and uh, then they stage this robbery. They pretend to be robbed and, oh, I'm going to be kicked out of the order. I've lost the silver. And mm-hmm. they take up a collection in the neighborhood so everyone can feel good about themselves. And and the candle maker calls the, the local constable, the local um, yellow cloak over. And it's, you lazy bastard, if you hadn't been sitting on your ass, you wouldn't have let these scum in our part of town. You know, you, you know, and he, he's just like this cauldron, you know, bastards. Cauldron bastards, you know, these catch fire plague victims. Why'd you let those sons of bitches in here? We need to build a wall around this place. <laughs> We're, gonna We're gonna build a wall around it. We're gonna make the catch fire district pay for it. <laughs> We're gonna take it out of your goddamn pay, you know. Right. So it's hard to really feel sorry for them because they are only charitable in that. They don't want the unpleasantness coming into their neighborhood, yeah. but they like to feel good about themselves so that, you know, they start coming to the temple of Paralandro and I'm so sorry about what happened in the Videnza and giving them extra money. And yeah. so it's just such a beautiful way that Locke sees this kind of weakness and is able to use it. It just shows you how well he knows people and can read people. Yeah, it's a level of insight that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect from somebody twice his age. Right. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And we also learn from this section that the priests of Azagia are creepy as creepy. fuck. Right? Metal mesh masks. Hanging out with dead bodies all day. She's wearing a chainmail queef. 
so metal. You know what? The priests of Azagia are definitely the most metal of all the priests. So metal. (laughs) And we just, we also had to mention the running gag of a hundred years of health to you and your children and the blessings of the Lord of the Overlooked. So this is obviously something that the priests of Paralandro say when they're given donations. Mm -hmm. And in the very beginning of the chapter, a guy comes by and throws in a clipped copper into the kettle. And so Chain says, 50 years of, of good health to you and your children and blah, blah, blah. And he turns to Locke and says, it would have been 100 years, but I could tell that was a clipped copper. And so throughout it all, as Locke is, you know, being an initiate and he's, you could tell, so the, to, to the clerk he has to bribe, he gives her 20 years of good health. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you know. <laughs> The um the thing about the Church of Paralandro is something that that does bother me because it seems to me that the Church of Paralandro would know that there is somebody operating a bogus church in their city. So my perception is that this is the Church of Paralandro in the city, and it seems to me like probably there's not an terribly organized like overarching big c church of paralandro probably each city has its own little pocket and that chains has maybe learned enough to kind of fool any wandering priests that might come by but there's not any like overseeing church that's going to come down on him or, or is collecting their donations that seems strange to me I mean, it seems strange to you because maybe we just don't understand that about this world yet. Could be. I feel like there was a couple references in some former chapters saying that sometimes, I think, I think it's said that sometimes legit priests priest. come come right. by. We would have to put them up and you know pretend like we're the Church of Paralandro. So I guess that's what it is. Is that just according to the Church of Paralandro? This is a legit Church of Paralandro. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, that was a little bit strange to me. But no, that makes sense now that I Well, I especially if it. you have a world where everything is these little pockets of civilization that are each... Uh, Probably highly disconnected from each other. Right. You've got these city-states who are not part of a greater nation, you know? So you just wonder how much communication there is between the different governments. Well, when when in the present tense, Locke is able to convince the Don and the Donia that there's about to be, you know, that this nation just up the road is on the verge of civil war, you know, it just shows you that communication doesn't, you don't have the present day just availability of information. Right. And it makes it easy to trick people into things. So, so right. all right. I feel I feel better about it now. I can move forward. Okay. Well, let's move forward. We to should do that. We should chapter do that. five, which is called the Gray King. Dun, dun, dun. He's the most metal of all the kings. Yes, he is. So, in part one, we get back to our present tense, and Locke is going back and having another conversation with the Don and Doña Silvara, and also Conte, and. Then he sort of, you know, kind of finishes up with them, gets a little bit of money from them, and prepares to move on. So what notes do you have for that? So I have one quote. The more in control the mark thinks they are, the more easily they respond to real control. So we see the fruition of the development we started to see in Locke at the 
the interlude, his insight into other people, yeah. his ability to play other people. Mm-hmm. And he comes in and it's, it's, I just thought it was hilarious how the Donna and Conte are both making these, what they think are these subtle like innuendos and threats and like, oh, I'm making prayers for your safety while fingering their knives. You know, yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, and she's like, and I'll make, I'm sure you're going to pay back what you owe us if Mm -hmm. my plans come to fruition. He's just like, whatever, you know, he's like, ha ha. Sees right through all their... And he's like, they're playing right into his hands, though. Well, yeah, and and I thought it was telling, in my opinion, that Conte can't quite seem to conceal it, whereas the Donia, I mean, she makes these little subtle comments, and he's able to tell that she knows what's going on, but she doesn't really betray it. She doesn't, you know, attempt to make any subtle digs. But Conte can't quite seem to contain himself. He doesn't have the same self-control. You know, he's got to make the little jabs and digs. So I thought that was interesting, um, sort of glimpse into his personality. And he ends by saying, Kimura can be a very dangerous place in the most unlooked-for of ways. <laughs> And that's how we move into part two. Right. And At, in part two, we've learned that they have gotten more than 17,000 crowns in half a week from these people. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. But also, this is where uh, Quoth begins to... Oh, dang. This is where Locke... Begins to walk through uh, one of the parks just as false light is coming about. And he's going through this park alone and content and very happy with himself. And so very alone in what should be a busy park. And that's when all magical hell breaks loose. Right. So, yeah, I thought it was it was funny how Locke is going through. And he's talking about how, how content he is and how great everything's going. And he's like, you know, he's planning one more touch in this game. And then he's going to go to ground and let this whole Grey King mess sort itself out. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, eerie shit starts happening. Yeah, he ends up on the opposite side of the park from where he thought he was. And and. Somebody somebody says something from behind him, and all of a sudden, everything turns pitch black, and that is the end of part two. Did you have any particular notes in this section here? No, just that eerie shit starts happening. Yeah, it's... it's inter- I mean, this is a very, very interesting part. Obviously, we know from having read the chapter that this is all sort of an illusion brought on by the Bonds Mage, but it's interesting to start beginning to think about how do they do that you know like was the park really empty or did they make it appear to lock as though it was empty you know like and if that's the case then they had to pull an illusion on other people who would have been around who would have otherwise seen so it makes you start to think about what the bonds mage is is actually capable capable of. of absolutely yeah which it seems like he's capable of some badass shit right so that's it for part two. Right. And in part three, he wakes up, but strangely. It's not as though he's waking up from being drugged. It's like in a blink, he's in a different place. Yep. And he finds himself in an empty tavern with a crossbow at his back. 
and he becomes questioned by a person who seems to know everything about him and everything about the gentleman bastards. And he really is tries to hang on to his Lucas Fairwright identity. Yeah. Um, until it becomes very clear that this person knows not just that he's Locke Lamora, but he knows everything. Yeah. It's almost as though he's been watching him. Perhaps via a dark shadow. Some weird shape that darts around. I called that shit. You did call it. Called it. Anyway, we'll come. call it. We'll get back to that. Giant flappy Winona Ryder bird. That's right. (laughs) I mean, it may have taken me a while to get there, but I got there. So Locke thinks at first this must be the spider, but he turns around and finds that it is the the Grey Grey King. King. Holy shit, it's the Grey King, yo. So do you have a fantasy cast for the Grey King yet? Uh, no, not yet. not yet. Okay, because I think he should be played by Christopher Guest. Ooh, okay. Who was Count Rugen in The oh, Princess Bride. That's right. Yeah. I know you know who that is, but just in case someone didn't know who that was. Yeah. I got, I got an image in my head, but I can't quite think of... Who it is. I, uh, I kind of like the guy who played Kevin Lannister in Game of Thrones in this role. Hmm. But I can't think of the actor's name. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's wearing all gray. All gray. Like you do. It's a little on the nose. And he seems to almost apologize for it. He's like, you know, I kind of have to. It's on brand. You know, I gotta. gotta but I think he likes doing it. Oh, yeah. He's a bastard. This is obviously a guy who is choking on his own self-importance. Oh, so much so. So he's, yeah, covered in gray clothes, clothing, graying hair. Uh, he's lean and rangy and comory in appearance. And he's got some freaky magic at his disposal. So at first, Locke assumes that he is a bonds mage, but he soon learns that he is actually just employing a bonds mage yes. named the Falconer. And then we move into a flashback in section four. Eagle Bones. If anyone has not ever seen the show called The Aquabats. It's Eagle Bones. And you want to see some weird freaky shit that's meant for kids. The Falconer is Eagle Claw. (laughs) Eagle Claw. So anytime anytime the Falconer would say anything to Locke, I would just picture John Heater going with his little eagle claws. Eagle Claws. That will make no sense to anyone who hasn't but watched that it's show. It's hilarious to me. But it's really funny because <laughs> our yeah. kids have made us watch it a lot. I summon the dude. <laughs> so then we get to go to a flashback where Chains is explaining to Locke why the Bonds Magi are not to be fucked with. Yes. And then, yeah, we get a history of the Bonds Mage and... One of the things I thought was interesting is they kind of spell out pretty clearly how much money it would cost to be able to hire one of these bonds mages, which is does two things for me. One, it helps me to understand why you don't have this shit going on everywhere. Right. You know, because if these guys are that freaky powerful, then why isn't that shit showing up all the time? The other thing is that it tells me there's something else going on here with the Grey King other than just money. Because the Don, or even the Gentleman Bastards, you know, have 40,000, 45,000 marks, total marks. 
they would only be able to hire this guy for six weeks. You know, and this motherfucker seems to keep this guy around for two months. It for, says at a minimum, he's kept him around for two months. Right. You know, no, it says two months. So, well, yeah, yeah. So this, this son of a bitch is either just got fuck you money or there's something else going on. And I suspect there's something else going on. Somebody owes him a debt or something. Right. So the bonds magi are essentially the only sorcerers on the planet. And the reason they're the only sorcerers on the planet is that they kill anyone else who tries to be a sorcerer who won't join their guild. Yeah. And because of that, they can charge anywhere from 500 to 1,000 crowns a day. We also learn that the Bonds Magi show their status by a series of tattooed rings on their wrist. And the more rings you see, the more carefully you need to step. And it's mentioned that the Falconer has three rings. So we know that this is a an experienced bonds mage. Yeah, he's at least he's not he's not a rookie. We don't quite know what the ranking means, but this guy's been around for a while. We also learn that uh, nobody messes with the bonds mage. Eye. If you mess with one, or if you kill one, the entire society will come down and absolutely crush you, just wipe you off the map and anything you've ever loved. All your family. So whatever you do, don't kill one. And in fact, don't be rude to them. Right. So here's a quote that I wrote down from the very end of this section. And Chain says to Locke, sorcery is impressive enough, but it's their fucking attitude that makes them such a pain. And that's why when you find yourself face to face with one, you bow and scrape and mind your sirs and madams. So what does Locke say as soon as he sees him? Nice bird, asshole. Nice bird, asshole. (laughs) First thing out of his mouth. And it's the bird that's been watching them the whole time. Right. And then Locke also tells the falconer to eat hemp and shit rope. (laughs) (laughs) Man. So, yeah, he's uh, he either doesn't care a lot for his uh, his own personal safety or he just really, really dislikes authority well i think a little of both and you know i'm reminded of the quote with that where the thief maker in the very beginning is talking about Locke and says if he had his throat cut and a surgeon was sewing it up he would steal the needle and die laughing <laughs> exactly and you're like yeah that's this that's, character that's about right he also correctly surmises that the gray king wants something from him so, and that he's gone through all this trouble to magic him out of a park and tie him up in a tavern. He's probably not going to kill him if, right away. Yeah, if he wanted him dead, he would have killed him already. However, we also meet Vestris, who is a scorpion hawk and a fine and persuasive little bird. Yes, apparently. he puts on a very uh, a very proper demonstration of his bird-like prowess. His or her, do you think? I can't remember. I don't know. I have to look it up. With a name like Vestris, who can tell? I kind of thought it was a chick, but that's okay. Maybe, I don't know. So So, basically, the Grey King lays out what he wants Locke to do after uh, Vestris comes over and latches on to Locke, attacks him a little bit, but we also learn that Vestris has a a poison in her rear talon. Yeah. The other thing I noted about the Grey King is that the Grey King seems to speak the language of the right people. He knows the terms. He knows how to use them. He knows what they mean. And while he might be able to learn a great deal about Locke Lamora from observing him, from, you know, his uh, flying marmot running around and, and, and keeping an eye on everything, but this cat 
has clearly been around this society for a while. So what he wants from Locke is for Locke to interface with Barsavi while pretending to be him. And Locke rightly surmises that this is a fucking terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. This is a bad fucking idea. But it's not as though he has a whole lot of choice in the matter. Right. And the Grey King assures him that he'll be safe. Everything will be fine. You just do this. We'll part ways. Everybody happy. Locke knows he's bullshitting him. But he doesn't really see any way out of it at this point. No, he doesn't have much of one. I thought it was clever that he he did manage to walk out of this with one thing. You know, what he said was, I need to be able to have a way to call you. This is not to the Grey King, but to the Bonds Mage, uh, the Falconer. He's uh, Eagle Claw. That's what we're calling him now. Yeah, he's Eagle Claw from, for the rest of the goddamn series. His name is Eagle Claw. <laughs> and he's played by John Heater. Like, he has to be. Has to be played by John Heater. There's no other way around it. Um, so he, he manages to convince him that he needs a way to get in touch with him if something should go wrong, or if there's something that should happen between now and the contact that he's got to have a way of contacting him. And that, um, and so the Falconer provides that. So he does, you know, kind of get something out of it. We'll see whether or not he's able to do anything with that or how, if he's able to leverage it, but it gives Locke a certain amount of control because he can call and sort of summon the falconer when he wants him to. So he could potentially trap him if he wanted to. I also thought it was interesting that the Grey King seemed familiar to Locke in some way. Yes, and I cannot tell you how long I spent agonizing over that and looking for every... Well, it was about a half an hour, so I guess I can't tell you how long it was. But I spent about a half an hour... Looking at, I read through the description of the Grey King over and over and over again, and I looked for every little word in there, everything I could find about the interaction, and then I tried to relate it back to everything I could find in the book, and like, you know, uh, it was frustrating because... In my opinion, when an author says, damn, he looks damn familiar, then that means we have seen this person before. And I'm like, who the fuck have we seen who fits the description? So I came up with two. I don't think either of them are right. Okay. Uh, one I feel like is definitely not right. Okay. But I'll go through the mental exercise anyway. So one thing he says about the great king is that he had hunter's eyes. Okay. And when they were describing the Don, when they first met the Don, the very first, you know, interaction with the Don, he said he had eyes like an impatient archer hungry for targets. Okay. But there's no, but the Don's physical description is so incredibly different that it doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. Right, and it's interesting when he he talks about the Grey King, he said he seemed familiar, not in any specific way he could put his finger on, but just that he felt like he'd been in his presence before. Yeah, well, uh, he'd been in the bird's presence. Um, So what was your second? 
so, well, I also uh, thought about Conte, but again, the physical descriptions don't match. And the book's not that far along, so we haven't met that many characters. We haven't. The only other one that I could come up with is uh, Vitaly, who is the guy who rows the boat. And there were there were just a couple of, like, he kind of did sort of somewhat match the physical description, what little bit you get of him. And there was, I wish I could remember what the other, there was a couple of other reasons why I went back and I sort of looked at, looked at him, but he's the only kind of potential person I think it could be. You know what? I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't take it. I just have to tell you. The Grey King is Locke's aunt. (laughs) What the fuck out of here? He's his aunt. I mean, is is he carrying around a, a lemon scented box? <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. Don't give too much away. <laughs> so, so in so what you're saying is, I'm sorry, in, I took you out of really serious speculation mode, and your face was just like, <laughs> uh, yeah. It took me a while to be like, where the f- are you going with this? <laughs> like, there was some poem you missed it. <laughs> So, anyway, we clearly don't have enough evidence to be able to figure out who the Grey King is. Right. So, you just kind of got to put a pin in that as yeah. we move forward. I, I also thought it was interesting, and again, that we note that the Falconer sees what Vestra sees. And obviously, that's something we speculated, but mm, it's I said it was here. a wizard's familiar. You did. Bam. Yes, you did. Every You're once in a while. This. Every once in a while, I get one. Yes. <laughs> Got to celebrate the successes. All right, so in part six and part seven are sort of when Locke kind of, you know, gets thrown out of the van with a bag on his head and they say, right. say better luck next time, schmuck, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, and when he kind of gets back up with his crew and recaps everything and that's sort of what happens. And they've happens. got a new problem, fresh from the oven and hot as hell. <laughs> oh, you're clever, clever, Mr. Lynch. It's good lines in this book. It's really good lines. Love it. You just there, want to read them out loud. There's nothing better than nice bird asshole. Nice bird asshole. I need a shirt that says nice bird asshole. Someone needs to make me one. I liked it so much that... I found an image of the words somebody had done in like cross stitch uh-huh. and made it the header on our Twitter page. I-, I love it. And by the way, if anybody knows who did that or where that image comes from so we can attribute it to them, let us know because it's fucking hilarious. And then the way we actually end, the final thing is the guys are all inside the Church of Perlandro. Is it the church? Of- no, no, they're I'm not at the church of Paralandra. They they reconvene right. yep. in their their rooms at the way up in the tower. In the tower, right? And they're kind of like, oh crap, what are we gonna do? Uh, they they go back and forth a little bit. Um, first of all, they ask the the obvious question: How's the Grey King been paying for a three ring bonds mage for over two months? Yeah, exactly. But either way, they they start making plans to escape, but they come to the conclusion that it doesn't make sense for them to leave now. They've got to at least hang out for three days, but they, they're like, we're going to stay in pairs. We're going to do this. Um, except for Jean, he's got his, his wicked sisters, which I love the wicked sisters. And, um, you know, then at the close of the chapter, the, the Barsavi's dogs come knocking on the door 
and the Barsavi wants to see Locke. We, I need, he needs you now. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So just adding more tension to this, you know, already. And then you had to stop reading. Yeah, yeah, I did. And because of the way this all fell over the holidays and us getting sick and all of that stuff, I haven't been able to read it for like 20 days. It's been a long time. I'm so excited for you to read the next section. I'm excited too. I'm glad it's a, it's a more substantial section. So I don't get just a little bit of a tease and have to stop again for a week. Right. And we'll keep playing with the section length. And I, and I do try to pick ones that make sense uh, narratively and don't, don't stop on too much of a cliffhanger, but really this is a book where the action builds and builds and builds until the end. So very exciting. So do you have anything else for this? Nope. Okay. Ready for predictions? Yes. All right. I have two predictions. So prediction number one is the uh, Berangius twist sisters. Yeah. The twins are in the Grey King's employ. Ooh, nice one. Okay. The second one is that I don't think the Grey King is paying for the Bonds Mage. Mm-hmm. I think he, I think they owe him a favor. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one too. So either he either he has some blackmail, which I can't believe, because they would just kill him, or more likely they owe him some sort of favor, because I think this is more than just a money thing. I like it. So that's it for my predictions. We'll see, see how they pan out. Hope they turn out like my wizards familiar. That was a good one. One. Okay. You're good at this. Thank you. Every once in a while, you know. Here's the thing: if you make a thousand predictions. Every once in a while, you know, two or three of them will be right. You mm-hmm. know? And then if you're just, you know, you just conveniently forget about all the ones you fucked up, then you sound <laughs> like a genius. That's the way cults work. Come on, you know this. So, all right. So now I want to talk about something different. Liz, what have you been reading lately? Well, you may have noticed that I've slowly and surely having my life sucked away. <laughs> been talking less and less. So the newest book in Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, Oathbringer, has come out. And so I've been doing a reread of the first two books in that series. And there's a novella that came out between books two and three, which I am 89% of the way through. And you dragged me away from to start this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, yeah, so I've been reading that every spare second. And it's so interesting every time I read this series because the first time I picked it up I picked up the first book Words of Radiance which is a very thick book and I like Brandon Sanderson's other stuff and I got halfway through it and I just couldn't do it I was bored and it takes a lot for me to put a book down and I remember being like man I don't so the second book came out no I picked it up again because I I just can't I hate leaving books half finished. And I was able to get past that point and be like, oh, you know, that was actually pretty good. It it grew, it, it grew toward the end. Mm-hmm. Um, the second book come out, came out and I thought I would try it again. And by the time I got through that second book, it was like, it got me. Mm. Um, so it was kind of a slow burn. So this time through, I'm rereading them again. And I had the same kind of, I, I picked it up again and it had been a while since the second one came out. And I was like, oh, I don't remember why I liked this so much. But by the end of that second book, I it was like I liked it so much I kind of hate it because <laughs> <laughs> because I hate everything that's coming between me and this book. Like, like I love you, but don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> you for, did sort of look at me funny when I was like, what you doing? You were like, I did. <laughs> for fuck's sake, like, I'm obviously reading. 
considering moving out. <laughs> so yeah. I've done this book. That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I'm just going to get a motel. I'm going to a different room. I'll be back in 48 hours. <laughs> so that's how much I'm enjoying this. And I'm getting ready. So this is also fair warning for you. I'm about <laughs> to now start the third book. So, so don't fuck with me. I, I love you. <laughs> but, you know. Can we just talk in a few days? <laughs> Like, I got to go to all work all next week. You know what I mean? All right. So that's what I'm reading right now. How about you? So I am I am reading Hyperion by mm. Dan Simmons. I don't think I know that one. Tell me about that. So I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give too much away. But it's... It seems more, it's more sci-fi than fantasy at this point. I'm about halfway through the first book. Uh, it's a part of a trilogy uh, called the Hyperion Cantos. And like I said, I'm about halfway through the first book. And what I can sort of generally say so far is that it's a sort of a far future sci-fi. So it's, it's seven, eight hundred years into the future and it's after the Earth has died and people have moved mm. to other planets. And so they've expanded into these other uh, these other planets and stumbled across other lives and life forms. And, and um, where this begins is with these uh, six people who have been called by some great council to take some pilgrimage. And it's at the, it's at the edge of this... Uh, or the beginning, rather, of this huge impending war. And basically, they're all being kind of called to go on what they believe is going to be a suicide mission. And the way it sort of takes place is that there are six chapters, and each of the chapters is kind of like that person's story. And as you learn about each person's background it builds more and more information about where they're going and why they're going there and all the kind of connections that are between them. So, so far it's been pretty interesting. I've, I'm enjoying it so far. It's, it's one that I, you know, I want to keep reading it, you know, and, and um, not quite to the same degree that you've not the same love you've had for your Brandon Sanderson, but, but, um, <laughs> but I've been enjoying it quite a bit. We'll see how it ends. Because like I said, I'm about halfway through the first book. Nice. I'll have to put that one on the list. I'll let you know. Let me get to the end of it in three or four months, and I'll tell you how it ends. <laughs> I'll tell you if it's worth reading. Because for me, it's very much about how it ends. I have a hard time. If a book is really, really good, and it just kind of has a eh ending, then to me, it's just kind of an eh book. That's interesting. I, I feel like for me... If a book can catch me enough, I have a lot of grace for however it ends. Mm, yeah, you know, I, if, I don't, if, if a yeah. book can get me really into it, into the characters, and not have a completely stupid plot, that covers a lot of sins for me. <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy it. Yeah, and and there are certainly books that are among my favorites that don't have great endings. Dune doesn't have a good ending. But it's still one of my favorite books. Right. It doesn't have much of an ending. You have to read through The God Emperor. Yeah. I mean, I yes. And I have only read the first of the Dune books. My advice to anybody who would like to read Dune is read from Dune to the end of God Emperor. And then stop. And then stop and put the rest of it away. And don't watch the movie first. Yeah, well. Because you'll get to the end of it and be like, what the? What the fuck? <laughs> None of this happens. Just don't watch the movie. Yeah, read Dune to God Emperor. Don't read any of the shit that comes before it. 
and don't read any of the books that come after it. If you read from there to there, it's it, it's a great, perfect arc. They should have just stopped right there. All right, so are you ready for listener interactions? Yes, and can I just say, you probably were going to say this too, but we really appreciated all the people who reached out and gave us well wishes. Uh, yeah, so... Last week, we were not able to podcast because... All six of us in our house came down with a horrible, violent stomach virus at the same time. That's never happened It was before. something that we've been dreading since we <laughs> first procreated. What will happen if we're both sick and the kids are sick? And it, it finally happened. And it was as bad as I thought it would be. It was pretty awful. Honestly, it was, it was apocalypse bad around here for about 24 hours. Yeah. Really, really bad. If we had had the physical strength... We would have just taken over the neighbor's house and burned this one down. <laughs> it was terrible. But we lacked the strength to do it. <laughs> I just laid there. So poor Miss Elaine was safe. It was really bad. <laughs> it was rough. It was definitely rough. But, you know, we, we did put it out there that we weren't going to podcast due to that. And, and uh, so many listeners uh, wished us well and asked how we were. And, and that just that was awesome. It's touching. And it, mean, it means a lot to us. So we, were, we feel very grateful to have... The community that that we've been able to create here, uh, and to to build the relationships that we've been able to build, so we're, we've we're very very happy and very very pleased with with all of that. So thank thanks to all of you for that, and because this is such, I'm not going to read all of those because we we don't have the time to do it, uh, and also because it's been so long since we podcast, I'm not going to be able to get to every listener inter- interaction, but I want to get to as many of them as I can. Uh, here's the first one. It actually, it's um, somebody who's uh, appears to be looking for advice from you. It says, "Dear Duchess, my girlfriend has married another man. He is the king, and I'm responsible for guarding his life. So I am stuck in this terrible situation. And what makes it worse is that she still wants to come and always sleep with me." I wonder, <laughs> is there somebody else out there for me? By the way, I like tall blondes. <laughs> should I see it through? Kings don't tend to last long around here. What should I do? Should I commission an artist to paint her a portrait of my penis? Signed, Jamie L. So, dear Duchess, what should he do? Listen, you can never go wrong with a penis portrait. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying, as long as your junk isn't deformed in some way, why go for roses? That's boring. I'm not sure you're giving good advice here. (laughs) I have never promised good advice. Oh, fair point. (laughs) Side note. The whole Jamie Lannister Lancelot parallel, I have never connected before, but it makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. Right? Yeah, I, don't, I never thought about that either. I feel kind of embarrassed because... Sh- I mean, I don't know that like- Robert Baratheon holds up as Arthur, but still. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, but the the, the Pe- Uther Pendragon was very Robert Baratheon-like. Right? right? Oh, my gosh. So, hmm. Blowing my mind. I never really thought of that. So, 
Lancelot should have had a penis portrait. Clearly, that's what was lacking. <laughs> penis portrait. Sorry, it's late. Oh, I'm good. <laughs> so, if anybody else would like to ask Dear Duchess for any advice, I've set up an email address. Yes. Call it. It's email advice at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. And you too can get Dear Duchess to answer your question and give you advice. Not necessarily good advice. But advice. There will be advice. But advice will be given. So again, that's advice at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. All right, so first comment here is from uh, Daryl Mansell, who is at Sea Delicious. He says, hey, if you're talking about comics, might I suggest the following comics for you to review? Saga. Oh, love that comic. Mm-hmm. Descender, not one I'm familiar with. Copperhead, also not familiar with that one. Bitch Planet, that one I do know. Autumn Lands, Paper Girls, and Hadrian's Wall. I have not read Hadrian's Wall, but that's one I've really wanted to read. I really want to read that one too. And that's I think that's the one he wanted us to look at most. So we might consider picking that one up. To the comic book store. To the store we go. Ha ha. Huzzah. <laughs> All right. Ashley Marie says, I finally watched uh, Game of Thrones season seven and I loved your recaps. Have you read The World of Ice and Fire? Well, Ashley, yes, we have. <laughs> The World of Ice and Fire? The World of Ice. No, we haven't read that, actually. We haven't. It. No. Mm-mm. So The World of Ice and Fire is a huge, enormous project that George R. R. Martin took on that was supposed to be like a 60,000 book with a lot of illustrations that ended up having 250,000 words and being 400 pages or more than that. It's like 8,000. It's a freaking enormous tome. Um, amazing art. Uh, sketches out all kinds of history and uh, world building for A Song of Ice and Fire, but also has, you know, slowed him down from writing fucking novels. So I've um, I've read a lot about it, read a lot of reviews, listened to a lot of podcasts on it, but I have not actually uh, purchased it yet and, and read through it. You're looking at me like, are you insane? No, I just, I feel like, I. why do I feel like we had nope. that one? Nope. Maybe because we have the Wheel of Time one. That's, yeah, it's very much like that. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, it's it, it's almost identical. Well, in terms of concept and scope of right. that, that enormous Wheel of Time book that we have. And we have the same thing for, um, for Lord of the Rings, that huge, enormous. Right. It's the same sort of well, thing. Well, we need to get that. We, yes, we should. I didn't I know, know they had one for uh, Ice and Fire. Yeah, and it's glorious. Nice. It's amazing. And no. So sadly, no, we do not have it. And Christmas is over, and now people are going to have to wait. So Patrick Sponagle says, I'm glad you cleared up that David Lynch's Dune is an awful movie that you just happen to like. Right? (laughs) Yes, me too. I mean, it's... If I can say Jean Tannen... Then I can own up to the fact... You can own up to the fact that Dune sucks. (laughs) The movie. <laughs> but it's so amazing. No. No. It's amazing. Anyway. So 
The Beam FM on Twitter asked, and this is a sort of a nerd podcast type uh, type uh, Twitter account, said, what's your favorite nerdy podcast of 2017? And Marina at Pyroclepto said, the D&D podcast. Not nice. only are they entertaining, but they gave me some new insight on one of my favorite series. So awesome. I thought that was very nice. So I, I enjoy that very much. Uh, Felicia, who is at Targaryen underscore trash, said, just got to the episode where you guys list your top five countries by download. Don't worry. The only thing I'm offended by is that more Swedes are not listening to your podcast. <laughs> well, get on that, Sweden. <laughs> Targaryen trash is our one Swedish listener. Hello, Swedish Because listener. we have alienated the rest of them. <laughs> they can't hear us with their tiny ears. <laughs> can't hear us through all that fish. <laughs> Eating fish stew and having their tiny ass little ears. <sighs> they're they're good people. <laughs> they enjoy a good joke. They're just, you know, fucking Swedish. That's all. <laughs> Elliot Cosm at Buddy Reed says, um, and he was talking about our Ready Player One episode. And he's like, hey, I can listen to this one. It's the first book that I covered. And I actually mm-hmm. listened to his, his Ready Player One review. And if you haven't uh, gone to Buddy Reads, go to Buddy Reads on YouTube. He's got some fun YouTube videos where he goes through and reviews books and shows and things of that nature. And we like his stuff. And he hasn't, uh, my take here, I hope I don't I don't get it wrong here, uh, is that Elliot Cossum hasn't read The Gentleman Bastards. And so he's not able to follow along with us. And he's not really into fantasy as much as he's into other other things. So I think he's gone as far with us as on the fantasy genre as he's comfortable going. So we thank you for listening to Ready Player One, and we will definitely catch Elliot in some of the other things we do. Um, so back to Ashley Marie, who is at AshKitty93. She says, so what's up with the Capri Suns? It's deliciousness in a pouch. I mean, <laughs> I can't. It's it's happiness in a little silver pouch. It's, well, there That's you go. That's the only way I can explain it. Can I tell you the one time I, I, I recently cut open a Capri Sun and drank it out of a cup because I thought that was more grown up <laughs> and it tasted completely different. It was disgusting. <laughs> it's like water. It looks like water. I can't describe it. Just the, the the magic was spoiled. The magic is spoiled. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. She also says that um, her fantasy casting for Nazca is Ava Green. Stop it. That's mine, too. Look at that. All right. Great. Sweet. And she asked any recommendation for grim, dark books. And we replied to her, but I'm putting that out there for the listeners. All right, we talked about that a little on the Facebook group. Yep, that's right. And if you'd like to come by the Facebook group, go on to Facebook and search for the Duke and Duchess podcast group, and it'll pop right up. And it's a good little community where you can kind of interact with us freeform. You don't have the restrictions that you have on Twitter, uh, but also unlike our Facebook page, you can actually post comments or uh, your own start post, threads, yeah. start threads rather than you know relying on us to do it. So uh, that's been a fun place where we've been able to interact with folks. So go on there and recommend some grimdark books. LLMCB at Cruel Sister says, enjoying your podcast. Just finished the audiobook for Liza Locke Lamora. So this has been good follow up listening. 
Well, good. You can correct all our pronunciations. Yes, we need you. We need you to f- to settle to settle. Is it Vagrin or Vagrin? Because Vagrin sounds a little pussy doctorish. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Vagrin. Vagrin. That's how I'm saying it. That's Vagrin. From now on, it's Vagrin. <laughs> Chain metal queeth. Chain mail queeth. It's my new Vagrin punk band. <laughs> All right, so Adam at LFC Adam eighty eight one eight five says bag of milk, like a Capri Sun of milk. Who has been feeding you this information? I swear on Tumblr, I was part of a discussion where I could have sworn they said that in England they have milk in bags. He says milk bag sounds like something else entirely. <laughs> the end of this podcast is BG thirteen. <laughs> No, it's not. So Ian at Ian Crone says, Sabatha, he pictures as a young Beth Gibbons. Beth Gibbons is the singer-songwriter for the band Portishead. Oh, yeah. So I don't, because we haven't seen Sabatha yet, right. I don't really have a sense. Right. You know, if she's if she's supposed to be the love interest in dark-haired, I would tend to lean towards Ava Green. But mm-hmm. but I don't know because I haven't actually interacted with the character at this point. So right. I'm going to have to hold off. Uh, Nathan Hernandez at Animation Nathan says, do you have a favorite piece of art that's a good representation of Elder Glass? And you had recommended the Ivory Tower from The NeverEnding Story. And I had mentioned uh, Minas Morgul from The Lord of the Rings and two very different interpretations of right. what that looks like. And then that caused us to get into some discussion about different art for the Gentleman Bastard world. Yeah. And one of the things that you linked to that I thought was amazing was an artist by the name of Lily Anasimova, who had some really amazing portrait work for the lives of Locke Lamora. Some uh, just great sort of sketches of the different characters. Right, yeah, and I, I think she has a, a Tumblr page maybe that, yeah. that we linked to, but um, yeah, if you, I would definitely recommend looking through that if you're into yeah. some fan art. That's the, um, outside of like the cover art and sort of the official art, that's the best art I've seen outside of that. Mm-hmm. So it's so a really, really good stuff. Eric Geiger, who is at Eric Geiger on Twitter, and that's E-R-I-K-G-E-I-G-R said, liar, liar, bastard. <laughs> You made me want to join this company of thieves. Such a fun book. Thank you and happy holidays. That's fantastic. Yeah, good stuff. So anything else? That's it. We will see you guys back next week where we're going to talk about um, the interlude titled Jean Tannen all the way through and including chapter seven. Outstanding. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. I'm really excited for you to read this next section. I'm excited to, to get back to reading. I had to go get a whole nother book because it had been so long since we had read. So yeah, I'm excited to get back into it. You can find us at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at the D and D podcast. That's D as in David and as in Nancy D as in David podcast. You can also find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess and on our Facebook group just by searching the Duke and Duchess podcast group. Great place to hang out with us. If you need advice, you can email us at advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com and dear Duchess will give you advice. 
Now, we love our iTunes reviews, so if, if you love us and you want to help the podcast out, you can give us a review on iTunes or on Stitcher or on Google Play or whatever podcasting uh, app that you use. But really, if you really love us, the thing we covet the most is word of mouth. Tell somebody, tell your friends, put it out there on social media, link to our stuff. That's the way to really show us love and to get folks to listen. So you can have a bigger community that we can all interact with and hang out with. So thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for the well wishing and good night. Good night. Good night.